All right, well, let's pray then. Dear God, we just pray that you would be glorified tonight. We pray that your word would speak to our hearts. God, we pray that you would just, uh, just give us a fresh understanding of you, fresh revelation. God, just uh, touch us now for your glory. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, so Wednesday nights through the Bible uh, in a year reading plan. We're doing the recap and kind of a quick overview and then some thoughts about it. Um, last week we read from 1 Kings 21 to 2 Kings 18, which is a packed and somewhat confusing at times portion. Uh, next week is going to be 2 Kings 19 through 1 Chronicles 10. So uh, kind of just a quick historical overview and you know, just to give it the context again. <clears throat> after Solomon dies, the kingdom of Israel divides into the northern kingdom known as the kingdom of Israel, and the southern kingdom known as the kingdom of Judah. And basically they each have their own successive lines of kings. Um, Israel never had a bad king. So if you're reading about a good king, you automatically know it's in the southern kingdom. Judah um, did okay on the good and bad king ratio. And so if you read about a bad king, it could be through, from either one. But uh, basically, Kings and Chronicles gives us the narrative of these two countries. Uh, they really are one country by God's design, but now they've been split into two as consequence for sin. And so uh, we get to watch both of them play out. And we get to watch nationally what happens when a nation turns away from the Lord. And it's not a very pretty sight, but it's history. And it's there for us to learn from. Um, so as we're watching that... Kings, the book of Kings, first and second Kings, um, gives us, it's back and forth a lot. So it'll say, here's the king of Israel, here's the king of Judah, here's the king of Israel, here's the king of Judah. And it can get pretty confusing because there's a couple spots where there are two kings in the two kingdoms who have the same name. And so it can be pretty confusing at times. Um, there aren't really any fast, easy gimmicks for how you always remember it. But, um, but Kings is a little more back and forth. Chronicles... Once we get into Chronicles, um, First Chronicles is a lot of genealogy, kind of just putting in a context as we're looking ahead to next week. So that's about as far as we'll get next week. Um, but Chronicles, it's going to give us a lot more of just the life of David, and then it's only going to really give us the kings of Judah. So Chronicles is a, is a little more of a straightforward narrative to get through, uh, if that makes it feel any better. Um, but anyway, so tonight, historically where we were at in last week's reading, we covered... Uh, we covered a lot of territory, but specifically, there's two guys I want us to look at, um, and even one more specifically, and that's Elijah and Elisha. And um, these are two prophets of God who were called and sent by the Lord to the northern kingdom of Israel. All right? And so what you have is we get to watch, um, we get to watch how is God calling people. How is God speaking to people? What is God's heart for people through the words and the actions of these prophets? All right. And so, um, you know, we won't get into a lot, but as far as biblical typology, when we're looking at types uh, and settings in the Old Testament that apply, that give us pictures of how the Bible's put together in the New Testament, Elijah and Elisha, a lot of people would say, are symbolic in some ways of the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. All right, Elijah is a lot more about works and fire coming down from heaven, and there's judgment based on you are unrighteous. All right, uh, Elisha doesn't take away any of that, 
we also get to see a lot more mercy. We see a lot more healing. We see a lot more just, you know, the Lord restoring things. And, and it's not, you know, and you can, you can try and extrapolate this to weird extremes. But basically, if you're thinking about it, Elijah is a little more uh, fire and brimstone. And Elisha is a lot more miracles of healing. All right. Um, Elijah, uh, Revelation, we're pretty sure, is he's going to be one of the two prophets who comes back. He's going to be in Jerusalem, um, which parenthetically means um, if the rapture happens in our lifetimes, this Elijah could be alive on earth right now, which is kind of an odd thought, right? So pick your eccentric Christian of choice, and you could speculate. Um, but anyways, so that's Elijah, all right? But Elijah, then as he's getting old, and it's time for him to go to heaven, he appoints really somebody to follow in his, in his footsteps, all right? So he picks this guy, Elisha. And Elisha gets the privilege now of being the prophet to mostly the northern kingdom, but he's going to have some influence with the southern kingdom as well. And so tonight we're going to go through chapter 3 and the first part of chapter 4 of Second Kings. And... Um, we'll just kind of see, we'll see how it goes. So second Kings chapter three, verse one says, now Jehoram, the son of Ahab became king over Israel. So he's king of the Northern kingdom at Samaria. That's the capital city in the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah. And he reigned 12 years. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, though not like his father and his mother, for he put away the sacred pillar of Baal, which his father had made. Nevertheless, he clung to the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel sin. He did not depart from them. Okay, so last week we talked about Ahab is really uh, the definition of a evil man, right? It says Ahab sold himself to do wickedness. Um, so this is Ahab's son. And the text says he wasn't as bad as Ahab, but he was still bad. Right? So it's given us a little bit of context, and it says he didn't serve Baal, which is the pagan god of the nations around Israel, but he did serve the golden calves that Jeroboam had made. Now, when Jeroboam uh, was the first king of the northern kingdom, and to try and mix a little bit of doctrine to keep political power, he didn't, he didn't do away with the law. He just modified it to make it easier. And instead of worshiping the Lord at the temple, we got the best representation of him, and that's a golden calf. And we have two convenient franchise locations. You can worship at either one. There's no need to go all the way to Jerusalem. So this guy, Jehoram, is now king. And he's not sold out to do evil but he also has really no interest in serving the Lord according to the Lord's definitions, right? So he's, he's kind of like, he's a backslider. He's a passive Christian. He's kind of the guy who's, you know, he'd like to make sure he's covered and he's going to heaven, but beyond that, he has no interest in living for the glory of God. So, so that, so we get, so he, but he's now king, all right? Just became king because his dad died. Um, now verse four, now Misha, the king of Moab, was a sheep breeder, and he used to pay the king of Israel 100,000 lambs and the wool of 100,000 rams. But when Ahab died, the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. So, all right, so fairly common scenario. You've got this foreign nation who was paying tribute money. Uh, the king dies, the kid's in place. Let's see how determined the kid is, right? Let's see how tough he is. We're, we're going to kind of just, we're going to flirt with the lion a little bit here and see what we can get away with. So all of a sudden, Jehoram is king, and he just lost a major revenue stream. And what do you do when you get, lose a re revenue stream? You go to war. Exactly. So in, 
verse 6, it says, King Jehoram went out of Samaria at that time and mustered all Israel. So he's putting together the army. Verse 7, then he went and sent word to Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, saying, the king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go with me to fight against Moab? And he said, I will go up. I'm as you are. My people are as your people. My horses are as your horses. And he said, which way shall we go up? And he answered, the way of the wilderness to Edom. So now Jehoram's going to go pick a fight with the king of Moab, but he likes some backup. So he goes and calls his buddy Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah. And Jehoshaphat is this really fascinating guy because he was a good king. All right, tells us Jehoshaphat, Serve the Lord. Jehoshaphat loved the Lord. Jehoshaphat got rid of the idols. Jehoshaphat appointed people to actually go through the land and teach the word of God to the nation. Right? Jehoshaphat was a solid guy, but he had this one weird little thing, and that was he had this just this, he just loved hanging out with the wicked kings of Israel. Right? I heard a pastor say one time, he's kind of like the Christian who loves going to Vegas, right? And it's like, why are you going? He's, it's cheap prime rib. He's like, that's, that's not really a good answer, right? Um, but Jehoshaphat just, he, he likes hanging out with these guys. And we, we read elsewhere, right? On one of these trips, he takes one of his sons, right? And Jehoshaphat actually marries one of his sons to Ahab's daughters. And so Joab, Jehoshaphat is this really solid guy, but he's got this one significant area of compromise in his life that's, um, that's really never dealt with. And it has really long-term repercussions for the nation of Judah. But so now we're, we're, but we're getting the pieces set in place here. Okay. So you've got the king who's really pretty much rebelling against the Lord totally. And you've got the king who's a godly king with a couple of flat spots, right? So most of us would probably probably fall somewhere in the category closer to Jehoshaphat than Jehoram, right? We want to serve the Lord. We love the Lord. We still have some flat spots, all right? But we're putting together now this group. So the ungodly king tells the godly king, I'm going to war. Would you like to come with me? And he says, I'd love to. So then in verse nine, so the king of Israel went with the king of Judah and the king of Edom because they were swinging through Edom. Edom said, hey, you guys are going to get some money. We'll come too, right? This is, this is great. We're all in this together, right? So now you have the ungodly king, the godly king, and the pagan king. And they're all together in this battle that is, you know, obviously thought out. This is not impromptu at all. They're putting a lot of thought and effort into this. So they says, it says in verse 9, they made a circuit of seven days journey, and there was no water for the army or for the cattle that followed them. So they run out of water, right? They're going through the desert. On, an, on a you know, military campaign, and they run out of water. And they hit that point where, you know, for whatever reason, they didn't make good time or whatever, but now they can't go back, right? They're out. There's that, there's, you know, we can't go forward to the next oasis, and we're too far from the last oasis to make it back before we die. So now we're stuck. And then the king of Israel, in verse 10, sums up the situation. It says, Then the king of Israel said, Alas! For the Lord has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. Right? This is obviously God's fault. Right? I mean, it's so clear that God had this great plan to get three kings together and stick them in the desert and kill them. Right? That's where this guy's, that's where Jehoram's perspective is. Right? Did, did God call these three kings together? Did God call these guys into the desert? No. But this is where compromise almost always leads, right? Why is God doing this to me? Well, I don't think God's doing that to you, right? Your stupidity is doing that to you. And we're going to see this, right? There's this, there's this thing happening where you get a godly guy and an ungodly guy and a pagan guy together, 
and something bad happens, and all of a sudden now it's God's fault, right? And so we're watching this narrative come together, and now the ungodly king says it's God's fault. And then Jehoshaphat, verse 11, the godly king said, is there not a prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of the Lord by him? Right? That would have been a really good thing to ask at the beginning of the chapter, right? Like, is there a prophet of the Lord to tell me whether I should hang out with this guy? Is there a prophet of the Lord to tell me whether I should join forces with him? Or is there a prophet to tell me whether I should join forces with him and with the pagan king? Is there a prophet to tell us whether we should go on this march? Oh, now, but now we're out of water. Right? So now let's see if there's a prophet here. And lo and behold, there is. There's a prophet there. This guy, Elisha. Right? And we don't know. It doesn't say that they told, had told him to come. Right? We don't know what Elisha was thinking. Maybe the Lord told him. Maybe he just thought this is going to get ugly really fast. And they're going to need a prophet along. Um, but anyways, Elisha's there. So they say, you know, Elisha's here. And then verse 12, Jehoshaphat says, awesome. The Lord speaks through him. So they all go down to talk to Elisha. Verse 13. Now Elisha said to the king of Israel, What have I to do with you? Go to the prophets of your father and to the prophets of your mother. And the king of Israel said to him, No, for the Lord has called these three kings together to give them into the hand of Moab. So Elisha says, You know what? This is a really lame time to be coming to the Lord. Right? And he's just calling it out. Right? There's a time when people are, when people are dealing with sin. There's a time to be compassionate. When people are blaming their sin on God, it's time to say, I'm sorry, that's wrong. Right? Deal with it. And there's a time to be gracious, and there's a time when the most gracious thing you can do is to be blunt and terse. Right? And get what needs to be said, said. And so Elisha says, you know what? Why am I even talking to you? Go back. Go back to all the prophets who you tried to serve. Go back and do everything that you thought was going to bring you success. Why don't you go try that? See if that does anything for you. And, and uh, Jehoram says, no, no, this is all God's fault. And Elisha says, verse 14, as the Lord lives, were it not that I regard the presence of Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would not look at you nor see you. But now bring me a minstrel. So he says, no, no. He says, get this straight. Right? So get this straight. If it wasn't for the fact that there's a godly king standing here, I would not talk to you. Okay? But I'm going to show grace to the godly king. And so we get to watch this thing happen. So this guy comes, play the harp, and when he's playing, and it says the hand of the Lord came upon Elisha. In verse 16, he says, all right, I got a word from the Lord. And these three guys are thinking, all right, here we go. We're going we're gonna to get out of this. And he says in uh, verse 16, he says, thus says the Lord, make this valley full of trenches. For thus says the Lord, you shall not see wind, nor shall you see rain, yet that valley shall be filled with water, so that you shall drink, both you and your cattle and your beast. And this is but a small thing in the sight of the Lord. He will also give the Moabites into your hand. Then you shall strike every city and every choice city and cut down all the trees and stop up the springs of water. So Elisha says, all right, I got a word from the Lord for you. And they say, okay, great. He says, I want you to take this valley and fill it with ditches, dig trenches everywhere. Because what is more hydrating than digging trenches in the desert, right? So you think about this. I mean, this is, and this is, the, this is, if there is a consistent theme throughout the Bible, this is it. It's that people get told to do things that make zero sense, all right? And throughout the Bible, we get to watch. There are some people who say, that is dumb. I will not do it. And there's some people who say, that is dumb, but what the heck, right? Nobody ever really is like, 
There, I mean, there might be a couple, but by and large, every time somebody gets a command like this, it's just understood. That doesn't make any sense, right? When we finish digging trenches in the desert, there's not water. It's not like we're digging a well, right? We're digging trenches in the desert and we have no water. What's the point? Right? And the, but the Lord says, he says, you're not going to see wind and you're not going to see rain, but this valley is going to be filled with water. So here's, and here's the great part about the story is they do it. They fill the trenches and the Lord says, and by the way, if that's not enough, um, I'll, you, I'll let you win the battle too. All right. Just to, to be a nice guy. But then verse 20 says, it happened in the morning about the time of offering the sacrifice that behold, water came by the way of Edom and the country was filled with water. So it happens. All right. And here's the deal. This is, um, this is where we can't really appreciate this because we live in the Midwest. All right. But if you live in a desert region, um, this is a reality that's, that's really kind of fascinating. And um, I was listening to Chuck Smith teach on this. And Chuck's really interesting because he's on a first-name basis with every mountain in Israel. But, um, but basically what happens is when you have a desert, there's very often a mountain right next to it. All right? And just the way, the way the world works, the way geography and all that kind of stuff works, usually there's a mountain next to a desert or a mountain range. And what will happen sometimes is you can have rain in the mountains and you can have a lot of rain in the mountains and all that rain flows down and it comes across the desert. And because the desert is so dry, it doesn't soak in very fast. And so you can get like monsoon level rivers flying through the desert when there's no rain, right? And so like there are, you know, cities that are in the desert will have to have to have trench systems to basically handle the water when it comes because the city may not get any rain, but there will come a point at which water's coming through the city and it's coming fast and it's coming hard, right? So these guys start digging and we, you know, and the Bible doesn't, okay, the Bible does not say expressly this is how it happened. So I don't want to over infer, but more or less what happened um, as best as we can understand on observation of the world the Lord's made is that Elisha says, start digging, and it starts raining in Edom, because Edom's up on a, on a mountain, all right? And so they're digging, and they're watching the sun, and they're watching their, you know, they're, at this point, they're probably not even sweating anymore, right? They're out of water, uh, but they're just, whatever, we're going to die anyways, keep digging. And so they're digging, and water's raining, and it's raining, but they can't see it, right? There's, there's water coming, but they are not aware of it. They cannot see the picture, right? And so their obedience is going to determine their blessing, right? If they wait to dig the trenches until they see the water coming, it's too late. At that point in time, it's a flash flood. If you're, if you're down there digging a hole, you're dead, right? Uh, if they waited to obey till they saw the fruit coming, they would have missed out on all of it would have swept right by and left, okay? But because they obeyed beforehand, they got the blessing. And then at the end of that chapter, the Lord goes one step further. And now they've got this valley full of trenches, right? And you stick a bunch of guys in an army and they're all just digging. It's going to look pretty splotchy. So the sun coming across hits all these little puddles of water and the Moabites wake up and look out and, and it looks red. And they say, it's blood, they say the three kings, um, you know, got in a fight in the middle of the night. We didn't hear it. 
because when armies decimate each other, it's usually quiet. And so they must have killed each other. And let's just go, you know, let's go for it. And they're chugging out. And they get there. And it's like, oh, shoot. Right? So now all of a sudden, all these Moabites are coming unprepared. Uh, they're not fully armed. And the three kings and their armies just come in and defeat Moab. Okay? But, and, but Elisha tells them, this is a small thing in the sight of the Lord. Right? It's a small thing for the Lord to make it rain in a mountain, right? And then just to let the natural laws that he's put in place just do their thing, right? It's raining in the mountain. That's not a big deal for the Lord, right? But it's a huge deal for this army, right? And their obedience is a huge deal because it directly impacts what happens to them. So then um, chapter four, okay, we're just going to kind of, I want to try and complete the thought a little bit. Um, it says, now a certain woman of the wives of the son of, son of the prophets cried out to Elisha, your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that your servant feared the Lord, and the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. So they had like schools for prophets, all right, and one of these guys evidently died, left his wife and two, and two kids, and you know, there wasn't any social welfare program, there was no protection for widows and orphans in that day and age, and so this woman owes a debt she can't pay. Legally, the only system in place is her children get sold into slavery. So she comes to Elisha and she says, you know that my husband loved the Lord, right? In verse, in verse one, you know that your servant feared the Lord and now he's dead. All right. And now I'm stuck. And, and she's not blaming the Lord. All right. This is different than Jehoram. She's not saying God brought us out here, but she's, there's a, there is a little bit of a sense of, you know, why would God let this happen to us? Right? I mean, this, and you can't fault her. This woman is desperate. Right? She just lost her husband. She's about ready to lose her kids. Right? She's, in a, she's in a legitimate hardship. Just like these three kings were in a legitimate hardship. Right? Dying of thirst is a real problem. Okay? Losing your husband and then losing your two children to slavery would be a real problem. Right? So this woman comes to Elisha, but it's with a little bit of a different attitude. And she says, look, you know, like, I've been trying to serve the Lord. All right? I do not understand what's happening, but I've been trying to serve the Lord and I have been hit with this hardship. What do I do? All right? And so really, these are almost the exact same story in some ways, but we get to see a couple of different players and we also get to see it from different perspectives and angles, right? Because we've been talking about, you know, the Bible gives us the big picture overview, right? We get to see what happens to nations. We get to see what happens to kingdoms, but the Bible always comes back to the individual, Right? Because the Lord is always focused on what's happening to the individual at an individual level. And so we're getting to see that right here. Right? The Lord's saying, okay, here's what I was doing, you know, back when Elisha was alive. Here's what I was doing on a big scale. Right? But here's what I was doing with this one little lady who we don't even have a name. Right? We've been talking about this woman for 4,000 years. Not that many, 3,000. For 3,000 ish years uh, in world history. Right? We've been talking about this woman right? For 3,000 years. How many women from 3,000 years ago are we talking about? I mean, like what? I mean, if you made a complete list, there might be a couple hundred, right? There's not a lot of women from ancient history who are remembered. We're talking about this nameless woman tonight, 3,000 years later, because the Lord was doing something on an individual level. So verse two, Elisha says to her, what do you want me to do for you? Tell me, what do you have in the house? And she says, your maidservant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. 
So this woman is, is really at rock bottom, right? This isn't like, you know, this isn't like I'm broke. I, I just spent all my money on the iPhone 10 and I just don't have any money left, right? And this isn't that. Like, this woman is, she's empty. She's out, right? She says, I've got a little bit of oil, all right? And Elisha said to her in verse 3, go borrow vessels at large for yourself from all your neighbors, even empty vessels. Do not get a few. And you shall go in and shut the door behind you and your sons and pour out into all these vessels and you shall set aside what is full. So she went from him and shut the door behind her and her sons and they were bringing the vessels to her and she poured. When the vessels were full, she said to her son, bring me another vessel. And he said to her, there is not one more vessel. And the oil stopped. Then she came and told the man of God, and he said, go sell the oil and pay your debt, and you and your sons can live on the rest. So, I mean, it's a great story, right? It's, it's just an awesome story of the Lord delivering somebody. But there's a couple, I think, really key takeaways from this story. Okay, first of all, he says, go out and get vessels. Don't get a few, right? That's code for get a bunch. And this woman goes out and gets a bunch, right? She's borrowing every jar and every Tupperware and every container in the neighborhood, right? And she's filling them up and she's got, you know, her rows on the shelf of, you know, four deep and okay, how many, you know, can we categorize these, you know, columns and rows and layers? And she's got everything she can and she starts pouring, right? So just, so notice a couple things. First of all, Elisha worked with what she had, right? If she had had a little more oil than that, you think she still needed a miracle, right? If instead of a pint, she had a quart, she still needed a miracle, right? If instead of oil, she had had, I don't know, wheat or corn or whatever was, you know, important. Um, Elijah said, would have said, go grab containers or whatever and start pouring corn out of the back, right? So the Lord, as the Lord wanted to work in this woman's situation, what she had didn't matter. What uh, the, the content and the quality of what she had did not matter, right? Elisha didn't say, you know what? <sighs> it's olive oil. And if it would have been coconut oil, it would have, you know, he didn't, he didn't give her any kind of, he, he didn't give her any of that, right? He said, what have you got? She said, I've got oil. He said, great, we'll work with oil, right? The Lord's gonna do an oil miracle right now. So it's not about the content or the substance, okay? It's about... The obedience, right? He's, so this woman, you know, he says, he gives her very specific instructions. And to her credit, she follows them very specifically. He says, get, he does not say start pouring and then go get containers. He says, get every container and then go in, close the door and start pouring, right? This was, a, this was really, this was a private miracle, right? The Lord did not want everybody in the neighborhood watching. Now, I mean, the Lord got the glory. It was written down, and I'm sure everybody said, what are you borrowing all my containers for? Okay, but the woman, this all happened between, this was her and her children, right? If the woman had gotten one jar, it says when, when the jars were full, the oil stopped flowing, right? If the woman would have gotten one jar to test it out, poured it out, and then say, hey, it worked. Let's get another. It doesn't say, but I don't think the oil would have kept pouring, right? So, the extent to which she prepared to receive the blessing of God was directly proportionate to the amount of blessing she received from the Lord, right? She collected containers like she was expecting the Lord to do something, 
right? And those guys dug ditches like they were expecting something to happen, right? They get saved. There's enough water there for an entire army because they dug ditches. There's enough oil there to pay off an entire debt and still have left over to live on, right? This, that became that woman's income uh, for we don't know how long, right? But the extent to which they were preparing to receive the blessing of the Lord directly impacted the amount of blessing they received. And, you know, that's, that's, it's a simple concept, right? But it's one that we, wrap our, that we just really have a hard time wrapping our heads around in practice, right? If we do, if, if you think about it, if we prepare for life, right? If we prepare to meet with the Lord, like we expect the Lord to say something profound. Chances are he's going to say something a lot more profound, right? Or a lot more pertinent to our situation, right? I mean, we see this in every area. I mean, you know, in our church, right? There are some people who come to our church and they're really not expecting to hear from the Lord, right? There are some people who show up at church and they are ready to go, right? They are just like, let's do this. And there are other people who's like, you know, you honestly, you feel bad for them, right? It's like you, it's like you're showing up and it's almost like you don't even know why you're showing up, right? But you're not showing up expecting God to do something amazing in your life. And you know what happens for oftentimes? God really doesn't do something amazing. And, and then they can, and it's then easy to sit back like Jehoram and say, man, God just really is, is dropping the ball on us here, right? And, and you know, man, God is just, he's trying to kill us. God's punishing me and I just don't know why. And, but if, as we look at how the Bible is laying this out for us, right? If we live life like we're expecting the blessings of God, then oftentimes we'll experience the blessings of God. And this goes, it kind of ties in like with what James says in the book of James, right? He says, you know, you can say, you know, are you saved by faith or by your works? Well, just demonstrate your faith by your works. Right? If you don't have faith without works, you, have, you don't have faith, you know, you're not saved just because of your works, but you're not saved on faith without works because then if you have that, you really don't have faith, right? So if we want to live a life expecting God to do something, if we want to see God do something, then we're going to have to live like we expect God to do something, right? And again, you know, I feel like I hit this every week right now for some reason. Uh, this would be... It'd be easy for me to say, here's what you should do, right? Here is, here is how God wants to bless you right now. And if you will follow these three steps, you will experience the blessing of God. But God is preparing each one of us for something very specific that he wants to do, right? God has specific ministry opportunities for each one of us. God wants to have a specific relationship with each one of us as individuals. And so it's not so much what's the formula, it's what is God telling you to do? Is God telling you to, do, to dig trenches? Is God telling you to collect jars for oil, right? Uh, in the New Testament, is God telling you to fill water pots when what you really need is wine, okay? In none of these situations does the original request make sense. But in each circumstance, the extent to which you prepare is directly connected to the amount of blessing you can receive, Right? Peter did not think there were any fish in the water when Jesus told him to throw his net on the other side. But he threw it, 
right? And that's the great thing too. It's, it, he threw it in once and he got a load of fish, right? And that was faith. That was about the size of a mustard seed, right? Peter said, this probably won't work just so you know, but what the heck, right? That's not a lot of confidence. That's, that's enough faith to say, sure, I'll obey the Lord because he's God, because he might know something, whatever, fine. You know, because it's, because maybe it's just the simplest way to, to resolve the issue. I don't know. Right. But he had that much faith and the Lord brought the fish. And so the whole Bible is full of this. Right. And I think for each one of us, then the question that we all have to ask the Lord personally is, okay, God, what are you trying to prepare me for? Or what are you calling me to? Right? Sometimes it's preparation. Sometimes it's calling right in the moment. Sometimes it's, okay, you know, sometimes it's you got to do this now, or sometimes it's you got to get ready for this now. Okay? But in either circumstance, what am I doing? Am I living this? Am I doing this? Am I preparing for this? Like I'm really expecting it to be a significant thing in my life. Right? Am I living, am I, am I approaching life like I'm expecting you to do something amazing? Right? And so that's really, that's the awesome privilege because there's this cool balance where that's a question that you can never stop asking. Right? And not, and you can, you can ask it to guilt yourself. Like, well, I'm just not doing enough for the Lord. Or you can say, oh my gosh, the Lord might just pour a little more oil. I think I saw Tupperware back there. Right? Uh, you, can, you, can, you can just live life on this adventure of I have no idea what God's going to do next. And so I want to be aware. I want to have my eyes open. I want to be awake. I want to be living like this matters because it does. And along the way, we will get the privilege of watching the Lord do absolutely amazing things, right? We will get the privilege of watching the Lord move in ways that we could not have ever imagined because the Lord loves to take the thing that looks like a really dumb solution and turn it into something far better than we could ever have imagined. Right? That's the story of the Bible. That's really the story of the gospel. Right? Jesus loves to take people who look like poor selections for the kingdom of God and turn them into his children. Right? He likes to adopt them. Right? And, and that's really that's the summary. So that's what we get the privilege of as we're going through the word together is seeing these instances where God calls us to obedience and then we have the choice to respond or not respond. But the awareness, because of the example of those who went before us, that the choice to respond in obedience, we may not know what it holds, right? But we can know that whatever it holds is just above and beyond all that we could ask or think. Right? So, so let's be people who walk in obedience like that. Right? So God, we are just thankful for the example of your word. Lord, we pray that we would, uh, that we would walk in that obedience. God, we want to live expectant lives. We want to live like we're expecting you to, to do amazing things. God, we pray that you wouldn't hold us back, or that, that we wouldn't hold ourselves back from what you're calling us to, but that we would really just embrace all that you're inviting us into. God, please fill us up with your Holy Spirit. Give us sweet fellowship with you. I pray that we'd approach your word this next week just like it has incredible insights to speak into our lives. And I pray most of all that you would be glorified. So have your way with us, God, please. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.